1: This is PodSafe the UK.
2: I'm Nish Kumar. And
1: I'm Coco Khan.
2: And it ain't easy being green. Just ask the Green Party.
1: Their only MP is stepping down.
2: Groups like Just Stop Oil and Extinction Rebellion are stealing their thunder.
1: But are the Green Party actually the most radical party in British politics today? We speak to their co-leader, Carla Denya. Hi Nish, how's your week been?
2: It's been pretty good. I've been doing uh, some stand-up and uh, I went uh, to Brighton and Hackney. So I'm really branching out of my (laughs) left-wing bubble. I'm hoping to take in Manchester and Bristol next. (laughs) How was your week?
1: My week was... Since since we last met, I did some work, which was fine. And at the weekend, I went to a house party, and that was really fun. You went to a
2: house party? I know, hello. I thought that was beyond us.
1: 2006 called. <laughs> <laughs> they want to meet you in the kitchen.
2: I thought our, in our mid to late 30s, <laughs> the era of the house party was over.
1: I'm, I'm so grateful for the handful of friends I have that still do this.
2: <laughs> I thought we'd graduated to dinner parties.
1: Oh, no, no, no. With, uh, I'm still in my house party mode. I just don't get the invites. <laughs> But it was really good and it went on quite late and then the next day I had to go into kind of comfort womb mode. Would you
2: describe yourself as being in a state of chemical distress? I
1: would describe myself as being very fragile, (laughs) extremely fragile. To put it in context, I watched Damien Lewis perform his weird mumbling version of God Save the King at the F1. Have you seen that yet? No. Oh, Nish! You have got to see it. It's Damien Lewis from Homeland. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's doing a kind of crooner version of God Save the King while a guy plays saxophone and it is not parody. What, at the F1? At the F1! Well I don't think
2: I realised do they I didn't think they I didn't realise they did national anthems at the F1. At
1: Silverstone, yeah, yeah, really? yeah, they do, yeah. You've got to see it. It's very Vic Reeves.
2: Right, okay. <laughs> well, Vic Reeves Club <laughs> sing.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's and I had a moment being like, maybe this is performance, maybe Damien Lewis is Marina Abramovich, maybe this is telling us something <laughs> about the state of Britain. But I, I was fragile enough that I genuinely like shed a single tear. <laughs> Wait, you
2: cried because Damien Lewis did a jazz singer version you of know, God <laughs> Save the King. I, I
1: just was so overwhelmed by what was happening. It just was too much.
2: That's chemical distress, baby.
1: <laughs> but on the bright side, I have now finessed my sort of hangover um, process. Yeah, right. And my process is yeah. Chicken biryani, Fast and the Furious. <laughs> and I have nailed it. And I, I'm bestowing that upon you as my dear friend.
2: How many Fast and Furious <laughs> films did you watch with your Chicken Buriani? Two and a half. Two and a half, which ones? Are you going chronological?
1: Yes. I don't know if that's actually the right order. By the time it got to Tokyo Driftnish, I was like, well, I feel completely rebalanced and I've realised this is awful. So I'm turning this off immediately.
2: So there we have it, listeners. Another hot tip from a woman who's still partying in her (laughs) mid-30s.
1: How do you do, fellow kids? Um, speaking of films, by the way, yeah. there's obviously two big films coming out. Barbenheimer, Oppenheimer. baby. Barbenheimer.
2: Yeah, that's what, that's the portmanteau <laughs> that the people on the internet are using to describe the day on July 21st when Barbie and Oppenheimer are released on the same day.
1: The reason I was mentioning all the big film news is because yeah. we received some posts. It's a beautiful illustration that one of our listeners have created of yours truly, Coco Khan. And they've sent it to us. So, I mean, people who are watching online can see it.
2: Yeah, it's it's a left wing Barbie it, in in the uh, in the sort of packaging, and uh, it says um, with real accessories to revolt and organise. Uh, it's the the left wing Barbie is Coco Khan saying power to the people, and it says never gives up. And there's a microphone and a megaphone. It, it, it is it's spectacular.
1: It's amazing. It's an amazing piece of work by one of our listeners, Kath Kastner, who I believe does... The, she must be a professional because this She's is She's a incredible. professional illustrator. Oh, yeah.
2: very much a professional illustrator.
1: So now all I need to do is figure out where to put it in my flat. Where can it have the most impact?
2: Right on the front door. <laughs> So anyone has to look at it. Even if they don't come in your house, they've got to see it.
1: Maybe, but then I'd be worried that people would start like, you know, when you walk down the street and they're like, hey, you, it's you, it's a Barbie. Do you know what I mean? It's very, that's the sort of thing that would happen where I live. (laughs) People would know your identity and and throw it at you in hostile ways.
2: <laughs> it's a spectacular piece of work. Uh, it, we'll put it up on all of the socials so you can see it. Uh, and you can find Kath's work at Kath com. So look, coming up, despite it being another busy week in politics with the US president in town, a NATO summit, MPs debating immigration and an unprecedented doctor's strike, the headlines have in fact been dominated by one story. Ever since the Sun newspaper published its front page exclusive last Friday, there's been a frenzy, of speculation about the identity of a male BBC presenter who the paper alleges paid a young person for sexually explicit images. So look, we're recording this on Wednesday lunchtime and... At the time of recording, the presenter has not been named. This is almost a perfect kind of viper's nest of a situation here where we've got uh, a story that we don't have all the information around, a kind of 24-hour news cycle that people are just keen to fill with constant speculation. And at the centre of it, the Sun newspaper that seems to have an agenda against the BBC as an organisation. And then the BBC, an organisation that, has historically had a very serious problem, a very, very public problem with specifically child sexual exploitation scandal. So I think it's very important for people to be able to hold a number of things in their head at the same time. That it's possible that the BBC does have questions to answer, that it's possible the Sun, in its haste to attack the BBC, has maybe not covered itself in glory in the way that it reported on this story. This is an extremely serious matter and we don't have all of the facts. So, why in the name of God are you openly speculating? Why is Lee Anderson, the deputy chairman of the Conservative Party, using this story as a springboard to describe the BBC as a safe haven for perverts? I think I would be, I would just, if I was Lee Anderson, I'd be very, very careful about making allegations about a whole organisation given the Chris Pincher groping scandal, the MP that Boris Johnson was keen to protect and actually gave a job in spite of being aware of these allegations. Pincher is facing a, an eight-week common suspension after an inquiry found that he groped two men at a London club last year and a Parliamentary Standards Committee has said that his completely inappropriate behaviour was an abuse of power. So I, just if I was Lee Anderson, I'd be very, very careful about banding those kind of claims around. But also, we don't know anything. Wait that's surely the more responsible thing to do here. The week began with President Joe Biden making a whistle-stop flying visit to the UK on his way to the NATO summit in Lithuania. Uh, For Biden's first visit to Downing Street as president, Rishi Sunak even bought out the good crockery. Well, Joe, welcome. It's great to have you here. Back in Downing Street, I think... You've been here a few times before, I know, but your first time has... President, so we're very privileged and fortunate to have you here. Thanks for coming.
1: It's good to be back. You know, we've only been meeting once a month. <laughs> uh, is, we met in San Diego, Belfast, Hiroshima, Washington, here, and uh,
3: couldn't be meeting with a closer friend and a greater ally. Great to have you here. Hello, new no, we had new mugs. So I hope that there's something in there. The tea in there,
2: probably, I'm assuming it's iced tea. Thank <laughs>
1: That was genuinely worse than watching Damien Lewis do God Save the King (laughs) at the saxophone. Genuinely, I felt my whole body cringe up. Oh, God, what's happening?
2: Yeah, it was... He's not the most... uh, natural public speaker. Why
1: do they keep doing these highly publicised meetings? What are they actually talking about and achieving at them other than making me cringe to the point of keeling over?
2: Well, I mean, it, 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 I mean, it, they never quite look as natural. I'm not sure why they do them, is the answer, Coco, because it, it never quite looks natural. Um, Joe Biden was reading off cue cards uh, at the time, which obviously doesn't look great it's very rare that you have to say to somebody this is one of my closest friends but in order to facilitate a smooth conversation I will be reading off cue cards I don't know whether he was trying to avoid another gaffe because when Rishi Sunak became Prime Minister Biden of course referred to him as Rashid Sanouk I just think that there's maybe a chance of uh, the cue cards being necessary so that they stick to topics that they agree upon. Because, you know, there are vast differences between uh, these two politicians. And I mean, the 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 conversation this time, obviously, with the NATO summit, the main focus is uh, the US supplying Kyiv with uh, cluster bombs. It's obviously slightly uncomfortable discussion mm. given that the UK has signed up to a treaty uh, banning them. Um, it, it doesn't seem to have produced anything substantive yeah. uh, as a conversation between two world leaders. I, I mean, it doesn't seem to have been anything that comes out of it other than there's some new Downing Street mugs.
1: Right, exactly. That's exactly what every time I see it, I feel like I can see why soon act like he he's keen on them he is in the process of you know getting ready for running an election right and he wants to show himself to be a great leader on the world stage i can see why it works for him but i'm I'm not sure what's to be gained from it i mean even the conversations about climate which are so important the two don't see eye to eye and biden started talking to king charles about it instead anyway
2: that's what for me i found made this a slightly uncomfortable summit so um Biden obviously wasn't just here to see Sunak. Uh, he popped in to see King Charles at Windsor Castle. And the uh, topic of conversation was around the climate crisis. Uh, it's reported that the two men had a 20 minute chat over a cup of tea. And then uh, King Charles and Joe Biden attended the climate finance mobilisation forum in Windsor Castle's green drawing room. Now, this is only uncomfortable in terms of its timing, because Sunak has been facing a huge amount of mm. criticism uh, around his government's green policies. Uh, there was a report which we discussed in the show last week suggesting that they're about to drop a huge climate spending pledge uh, to fight the climate crisis around the world. And also, uh, Zach Goldsmith has quit the government and claimed in pro- that it was partly in protest over Sunak's lack of commitment to green issues. So it does feel a little bit like Biden has gone over Sunak's head. I thought the optics of it didn't look right because it also felt a bit like Biden had come in and thought, well, I'll have a cup of tea and I'll read some cue cards with the guy. But then when it comes to things like the climate crisis, <laughs> I'll speak to the person who's going to be in a job in 18 months' time. Like it did feel, it, 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 Sunak is giving off massive substitute teacher vibes. I would say it did feel a little bit like Biden was like, well, I'll talk to the bloke who's still going to well, be in a like job. you
1: were saying earlier, it's good to see two elderly states. People caring about future generations. Let's
2: not be around the bush. A couple of old fucking dudes. (laughs) Biden and Charles, old men. No doubt about it. To borrow an earlier phrase, these are two death-adjacent men, statistically. And yet, they still came together to talk about something that's going to affect their children and their grandchildren. I I, I think it is, you know, I'm not one to you know, lavish praise on people for doing the bare fucking minimum. But I do think in an atmosphere of the UK government, maybe moving away from a climate policy is something that it needs to focus on. In a week where reportedly Keir Starmer... Claimed that he has a dislike of tree huggers, though that was denied by the Labour Party. It was good to see.
1: It was good to see
2: two old guys chatting about the climate. I, I think it was. A, I think it was a good, a good thing.
1: Both Joe Biden and Rishi Sunak are now at the NATO summit taking place in Vilnius, in Lithuania, uh, as we record this. For great analysis on that, we really do recommend our sister podcast Pod Save the World, where they'll be speaking to the US ambassador to NATO.
2: Pod Save the UK is brought to you by Even the Royals on Wondery.
1: When you take a closer look at what it means to be royalty, you'll see that it comes at the expense of everything else, like your freedom, your privacy, and sometimes even your head.
2: On Wondery's new podcast, Even the Royals, they pull back the curtain on royal families, past and present, from all over the world. And you can listen for free wherever you get your podcasts.
1: From one of the most infamous royals in history, Marie Antoinette. But everything you know about her is wrong.
2: Or Catherine de' Medici. History branded her as a cold and power-obsessed manipulator, saying she was responsible for one of the most devastating massacres in French history. But she was an orphan who spent her life as a powerless hostage, and her determination to rise to power led her to some dark places and some desperate
1: measures. Follow Even the Royals on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge Even the Royals ad-free right now on Wondery+.
3: You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems.
1: On last week's episode, we had a fascinating chat with Chloe Naldre from Just Stop Oil. If you missed it, you can find it on our feed.
2: We had lots of reaction in our inbox uh, at Baby. P- I love the fact that we read out the handles of people who are often saying quite serious things, <laughs> but are often called chicken nug nugs. Uh, what,
1: what has been your worst username?
2: Uh, John Butthammer. <laughs> John Butthammer is the name that I saw. You know, if you're like um, like, a, like public Wi-Fi and it's not actually going to check, you know, there's some that send you an email and yeah. you have to follow it. But if it's not going to check, I'm butthammer at gmail.com. <laughs> I'm always, I'm John Butthammer. Oh, sorry, I do apologise. The Reverend John Butthammer. <laughs> the Reverend John Butthammer. Uh, and, uh, and the email address is dot. That's my and gift to you. And does that email address
4: actually exist? No,
2: if, it, if it does, it's got a lot of nuisance emails from various <laughs> hotels around the United Kingdom. <laughs> well, look, uh, in the absence of the Reverend Butthammer, um, we've got a uh, a really, really wonderful message from someone called At Baby Picture This. So... Let's move past at Baby Picture This. Thank you very much for writing in. And also, it's a lovely message. Uh, Baby Picture This said this. We're so lucky to have people like Chloe who are willing to do this work. The way we've made it socially acceptable or even expected to demonise those brave enough to try and save a burning planet is insane. This interview made me want to do better. Very nice from at Baby Picture This. Uh, At Madalina 2898, didn't agree though. I'm sorry, but this is my reaction to Just Stop Oil. And then there's a string of eye roll emojis. Get into politics and get involved in making some policies if you want to change something. Uh, I would say that on this podcast, we are huge uh, advocates of getting involved in politics, but I'd say we're also huge advocates of protest movements. And a lot of the dial of democracy has been pushed closer to progress By active protest movements. I would say it isn't a case of one or the other, and the two are inextricably linked.
1: We do love a movement here at Pod Save the UK. But nonetheless, we thought we would speak to someone who has done precisely that, got involved into politics and is hoping to make some policies. So please welcome Carla Denyer, co-leader of the Green Party of England and Wales and the party's prospective parliamentary candidate for Bristol West. Hi.
4: Hello. Thank you for joining us.
2: I'm glad that... uh, I I wish that the first thing people had heard you say on the podcast wasn't directly related to the Reverend (laughs) (laughs) Hammer. I, I have some regrets that the first time people hear your voice, have I on the degraded podcast. my
4: brand. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't.
2: Listen, the, even being in proximity to me can cause people's <laughs> brands to collapse. I, I, my my brand is so degraded that it like it operates like a sort of black hole. It can suck in other people's credibility. I'll stay over here. <laughs>
4: um,
2: it, it's nice to see you, Carla. We should declare that you and I went to university together.
4: Indeed, yeah. Um, I, d- I remember you. I'd be quite surprised if you remember me. Maybe I don't you know do. that we
2: actually ever met, right?
4: Um, so, I was a fan of your comedy. I... Seen you perform, oh, wow! But you were a big name on campus. So I very much wasn't then.
2: <laughs> I think it's funny the idea of me being a big name on campus, largely a because
1: as we oh. called them, <laughs> indeed, that was a Warwick I, University abbreviation. Was it really? Yeah, a
4: B knock. That's 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 what the youth say these days. Do they yep. still say that? Yeah, yeah, really? I learned I B knock off for Young Green a few years ago. Really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, wonderful!
2: Well, you've really made Coco's day because there's nothing <laughs> yeah. that she likes more than learning that she has things in common with people who are ten years younger than us, at least. <laughs> I correct. I don't think I realised I was a big name, largely because all we did was write sketches that we performed in university theatres, and then got drunk, and then processed our various hangovers.
1: On the subject of Beanox, see, she's do, she's doing it. She's doing a segue. She's doing a. She's segue. a professional broadcaster. L- let me tell you about a Beanox, Caroline Lucas. She's stepping down. Um, <laughs> she says she thinks she can make more of an impact outside of Westminster. I'm just wondering, how, what are your thoughts on the power of political parties? At the moment, you know, a lot of them are sort of hamstrung. And as we were talking about earlier, the kind of real sense of activism in terms of green policies at the moment does appear to be Just Up Oil and Extinction Rebellion. Do you think they've stolen your funder?
4: Well, don't get me wrong. I think there's absolutely a place for um, climate change, activism, nonviolent direct action, things like Just Up Oil. It's not the, the route I've personally chosen, but I think they've got a really important role in society to you know, push the Overton window and and, and get things in the news more. Um, and that really helps um, people like the Greens. You know, obviously, we're not the same organisation. We're not having sort of secret strategy conferences or anything like that. You're but not on I- a big WhatsApp. Yeah. <laughs> no. Um, but it is helpful because the the policies that people like Just Stop Oil are calling for are the policies that the Green Party have been pushing for decades. Um, and my theory of change if you like is to pursue those through the party political process so i'm trying to get myself and others elected to Mm -hmm. parliament so that we can actually make those policies happen
1: can i just ask us on a personal level what was it about taking that route that appealed to you
4: um so i i did used to be more of a campaigner on single issues so rewind a little bit my background's actually in engineering i did engineering at uni i worked in the renewable energy sector on onshore and offshore wind farms for about 6 years and in my spare time both at uni and when i was working i was doing a lot of campaigning on climate um like human rights uh fair trade back before fair trade was really a thing um but frankly i got tired of repeatedly asking the people in power to do the right thing and having very little faith that they were going to, or at least not without, an enormous amount of pressure from NGOs to do so. And even though getting elected as a Green is very hard work, mm-hmm. I came to the conclusion that it's less work than having to repeatedly ask politicians from other parties to do the right thing over and over again on every individual issue, instead stand for election to replace them. But, I mean, the Greens have done well in other countries. Yes. In Germany, yeah. for example.
1: Yeah. What are your thoughts on the appetite in the in the UK?
4: I think the appetite for green politics is growing massively. We've just had the local elections this May where we have had another year of record-breaking results, so that's now four consecutive local elections where we've made huge gains. We've more than quadrupled our number of local councillors um, uh, in those four elections, Uh, and that's all across the country as well. You know, it's not just in green kind of stronghold sort of lefty greeny cities it's it's in places like you probably saw in the news suffolk um mid-suffolk very rural previously very tory area we've now got an absolute majority i.e more than 50 percent of the seats that's the first time that's happened in the uk Um we've been part of the administration on other councils but it's always been with one or more other parties or a minority administration and there's less you can do in that situation because the other parties can like team up to vote things down.
1: Enormous success in Scotland as well, right? Actually part of government. Yeah.
4: Yes, absolutely. Um, and I think you only need to look over the border to see what you could have if you just voted for it. Like yeah. <laughs> You know, I, I, I have so many interviews where they're like, yeah, but that's never going to happen because you're never going to get into government, or how do we know what the Greens are going to do? It's like, well, you know, Scotland's not that far away. Just look (laughs) at the news. Like, um, you know, bringing in rent controls, bringing in record-breaking investment in tackling climate change, working towards a just transition for oil and gas workers uh, in the northeast of Scotland, record investment in protecting nature. Um, It's all stuff that our Green Party of England and Wales policies as well and that we want to implement here. And we're already on councils doing everything we can to do that. But there are some things that councils don't have the power to do, especially in the UK. We have one of the most um, politically centralised systems in Europe. So in a lot of uh, European countries, including the ones where Greens are strong... We're really pleased to get loads more Greens elected at a local level, but some of the things we want to do require power at a national level, and so it's a real priority for me over the next year, year and a bit, whenever the next general election is, to get as many Greens elected into Westminster as possible so that whoever's in government, probably Labour, we can pull them in the right direction, uh, hold, you know, keep them honest, and, and I say pull them, pull them to the left on the areas where they're not so hot on at the moment.
2: There's a lot sort of talk about uh, to sort of unpack specifically with your relationship with Labour because I mean we we literally had Emily Thornbury sat where you're sitting describe Labour as being the Green Party and if you want the Green Party you have to vote for Labour essentially if you want the Green Party's policy platforms and then after that in fact I think actually that maybe even <laughs> yeah. the week that that podcast episode went out the Labour Party said that you know sort of watered down their commitments on green issues or at least certainly push them back into the hypothetical cycle of the next government uh, after the next general election. The Labour Party is also seemingly with... This story about uh, Neil Lawson, who works for Compass, who's been advocating for more kind of of a sort of progressive alliance and maybe people voting more tactically, there's a chance that he might be suspended from the Labour Party. So there's a concern that the shutters are coming down on that. Is the solution here more of a a formalised progressive alliance, or is it just a question of? we need proportional representation, otherwise we're just going to be trapped in a two-party system.
4: And the best way to get proportional representation is for the Greens to get a load of MPs elected so that Labour has to listen. Yeah, Because I think it was something like 80% of Labour Party members or, or of local Labour parties support proportional representation, but because it's such an undemocratic party, the leader can single-handedly veto that and say, I don't care, I don't want it in my manifesto, and that's the end of that. Greens are... You know, cooperation, cross-party cooperation and recognising that no one person or party has a monopoly on good ideas, that's really in the core of our nature and, and green parties all over the world are all about cooperation. But that doesn't mean us like rolling over and just handing unilateral gifts to other political parties in exchange for nothing in return. So if there was the possibility of a progressive alliance, we would, you know, our door is always open and we've been pushing for that over the last few general elections. um, And and we would need Labour to to bring something to the table on that as well. And currently, their constitution requires them to stand a candidate in every single seat and completely forbids any form of formal cooperation. And so we are going to be standing candidates, um, if we can, in every single parliamentary constituency, um, and we'll be aiming to get a good handful of Green MPs elected. Maybe it'll be an outright Labour government. What I'd ideally like to see is a Labour government with a few Greens and maybe a few people from other parties in it as well, where we can do similar to what the um, Scottish Greens have done with the SNP in Scotland and got some really, really bold policy commitments um, out of out of that cooperation.
1: So you're talking about winning more seats, getting more MPs elected. You only have one at the
4: minute. Caroline Lucas, she's stepping down. Is that a blow? Are you nervous? She's quite a titan, really. Yeah, Caroline Lucas has been phenomenal for UK politics. As a whole, I think she's punched well above her weight. I don't think she likes that metaphor. Um, (laughs) and, and, of course, it'll be sad to see her step down, but the party is much more than one person. In fact, it's 50-something thousand people, and um, w- the selection for who is going to be the Green candidate in Brighton Pavilion next time is going on as we speak. Um, we're going to have the results of that in, in about a week, so that'll be really exciting to see who's, who's going to be standing there. And, yeah, our ambitions are much more than just one MP. We, we want a handful. So I'm the candidate in, uh, in Bristol, as you said, um, and my co-leader, Adrian, is the candidate in Waveney Valley in Suffolk. Both of those are places where we've got really strong chances. So in Bristol, you described me as the parliamentary candidate for Bristol West. Very soon, I will be the parliamentary candidate for Bristol Central because the parliamentary constituencies are changing. Bristol West was one of the largest constituencies in the whole country just because populations had moved around. So it needed to be changed. Yes. And... Um, Yeah, they've got rid of Bristol West, replaced it with Bristol Central, which is about 70% of the size of Bristol West, and it's concentrated in the greenest bits of the city. So if you look at the local councillors that are elected in that constituency, 12 out of 14 of them are green already, um, and the three wards that have been carved off compared to Bristol West, two of them are the very Labour voting, at least in general elections areas. So according to our data from boundary changes alone, that halves the Labour majority in the seat I'm standing in. So it takes it from something that looks on paper like a fairly safe Labour seat, albeit I came second, to being not a safe seat. But in fact, what else has changed is the leadership of the Labour Party. And I think the majority of voters in Bristol were much more Corbyn fans than Starmer fans. My profile, I'd I'd only been selected two months before the general election was called last time. Nobody knew who I was. This time, obviously, I'm national leader of the party. Um, And we've just had longer for people to get to know me and get Mm -hmm. to know the Green Party. We've been knocking on doors all of that time. And the popularity of the Greens has increased massively. We've gone in Bristol from 11 to 25 councillors since the last general election. So the boundary changes alone are really helpful. But actually, everything else that's changed since 2019 has changed in our favour there as well. So that's really promising. I do feel that a lot of people might not know
1: the Green Party's policies outside of the environment. I think people associate it with an environmental uh, party, but there's a lot of social justice stuff, a lot of radical stuff. Something we've been following a lot is illegal migration. I know that the Green uh, position is is quite uh, bold.
4: Am I right in thinking moving towards a no-border at all situation well it's not no borders at all but it is recognizing that people move and that migration isn't a crime and trying to like put up ever higher walls and punish people for moving which is a thing that humans have always done throughout our existence is is on a hiding to nowhere so you know yes of course I want people to stop making dangerous crossings in small boats but the way to stop that isn't to threaten them. It's to provide safe and legal routes for people to claim asylum. It's to increase the international aid budget so that so that some of the situations that are causing people to seek asylum in the first place are alleviated. Um, indefinite detention of migrants, Greens would, would scrap that. That's completely unjust. Um, Of course, we'd scrap the Rwanda scheme. And I think, yeah, the Greens do stand quite apart from the other parties on this because from what I can see of what Labour is saying, I mean, quite a lot of it is basically just saying we'd do it more efficiently. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, we'd process asylum seekers more efficiently and get rid of them faster rather than we would take a completely different compassionate approach to migration and asylum, which is the Green Party approach.
2: Yeah, and look, we're talking uh, on the Wednesday, which is the day after the illegal migration bill was taken to the Commons. It's in a ping-pong process it's going between the House of Commons and the House of Lords. Uh, yesterday, MPs rejected all 18 amendments put in by uh, peers, which was an attempt to make the legislation uh, approaching something more reasonable. I mean, I still think it's a fundamentally irrational piece of legislation, but it feels like the House of Lords is trying to pull it towards that. All 18 of those amendments have been rejected. It's it's definitely worth highlighting this idea that migration is going to be inextricably linked with the climate crisis.
4: Yeah, and the worse we allow the climate crisis to get, the more migration there's going to be as people are having to leave parts of the world that will become literally uninhabitable so while my my and the green party's motivation for having quite a different policy on migration is you know it is it is sympathy and empathy for the people that are having to move it's not it's not all everything through a climate lens but yeah. absolutely they're interlinked and the very reason that I originally joined the Green Party and didn't even consider any of the others was that the Green Party is the only party that understands that climate and social justice are two sides of the same coin and you can't extricate them. Mm. Um, Yeah, yeah. no, I've
1: definitely felt just on a personal level as someone who's always been interested in anti-racist struggle and you know struggle for gender equality and all the equalities <laughs> I can't name them all there's so many but you know how they intersect with the environment and it's always been a shame to see that those have been disconnected and I think it favors certain people which is why sometimes can I be honest I found it upsetting that the bre- the green uh, councillors are often some of the least diverse what what is why is that happening and what's being done about it
4: I think that is a reasonable observation, but it's getting better quite quickly. Um, so as we're getting a larger number of councillors, we're doing better at reaching into communities and and standing candidates from those communities. So like in Bristol, for example, um, there's 25 of us and we've got a really good range of Um, ages backgrounds you know we've got several kind of third fourth generation working class bristolians we've got two refugees in our in our council group for example actually our diversity could still be a bit better in bristol but it's much better than it was um and that is really important because we recognize that having a diversity in the decision makers in terms of their background and lived experience is so important for for the sort of inherent good of of being represented by people who ha- who have the same experiences as you, but also the research shows that the more diverse the group of people you have, the better decisions they make mm-hmm. for the simple reason that you're more likely to spot a potential error in a proposal if you've got, say, a single mum who's like, yeah, but you haven't thought about the way that impacts this particular part of my lived experience if you don't have someone in the room that has that lived experience. So... I think all political parties could do with becoming um, more diverse and the entire green movement has historically been yeah more white and middle class than it should be but I think that that is changing.
1: Yeah, in in 2015 the ethnic diversity was
4: on a par with UKIP. I mean in 2015 we we had we were so much smaller a party that we didn't have as much of the organizing capacity and like recruiting capacity and we we're, we're building that up now and we need to carry on building that up becoming, uh, you know, a larger, more organised and more more inclusive party, absolutely. But yeah, it's definitely important.
2: Um, one of the areas that there's been a kind of schism between uh, the Scottish Greens and the rest of the Green movement is around the issue of the rights of transgender people. And it's sort of my personal view on this subject is that this is uh, a minority that has been, uh, you know, demonised... Uh, quite specifically as part of a kind of political campaign by the political right to create a wedge within progressive movements in this country. And I I think it's a community that has been extremely vulnerable to acts of violence, but it's also now extremely vulnerable to exploitation by the political right. And I'm just wondering, what are your views on the way that this issue is being handled and how can we as a kind of progressive conversation sort of speak as one voice in this issue? Because that's specifically something that Shan Berry uh, cited uh, when she quit as leader last year, that she said she could no longer make the claim that the party speaks unequivocally with one voice on this issue.
4: I'm just going to fact check you slightly. Yeah. Sean didn't actually resign as leader. She just didn't oh, restand yeah. when there was an election yeah, when yeah. her co-leader resigned. Yeah. I agree with you. I'm increasingly really alarmed by the way trans people in this country are being treated as, I was going to say political football, but I would say it's even worse than that, like specifically targeted um, by, you know, campaign groups that have been set up specifically to try and reduce their human rights. It's shocking. I'm, I'm bisexual. So I'm part of the LGBTIQA community myself. A bunch of my friends are trans and non-binary. So there's a personal element for me as well. Uh, It's, it's, it's really scary, and I think we can't um, we can't just assume that like progress in society is inevitable. Mm-hmm. I think it can be dulled back, and there is a risk of um, LGBTIQA rights being dulled back in this country and and in other countries as well. And we have to, you know, yeah, we 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 can't just sit on our laurels. We have to we have to be active as progressive campaigners and politicians to stand up for trans people's rights. So. I'm never shy about being really clear about our policies on that. So Green Party of England and Wales policy is that we would bring in um, reform of the Gender Recognition Act to make it easier, um, less bureaucratic, less of a medicalised process to to get your gender affirmed, including recognising non-binary identities, which currently there's no ability to do that. There's a load of um, kind of bureaucratic things like um, uh, wedding vows. You're not allowed to say... Spouse, you have to say husband or wife, right. which means that um, uh, friends of mine, uh, a couple both of whom are non-binary, they have to choose between not getting legally married, which they want to, or misgendering each other in their wedding vows. Yeah, and for the vast majority of the UK population who are cisgender, this doesn't affect us. Yeah, um, and they may sound like small things, but if it's you and it's your relationship, it's your marriage, then it's just it's it's basic dignity it's the basic dignity that the rest of us have and it's not unreasonable to also
2: expect. who does that who does that hurt that's yeah, what exactly. i don't really understand you know like and there's a
4: lot of misinformation circulating around what gender recognition yeah. reform yeah. would mean like Absolutely. there's a lot of people talking about single sex spaces and toilets but it's not about that it's about dignity in your marriage certificate and your death certificate and so on and just being recognized for who you are and i think that's you know that's the bare minimum that people should expect in this country
1: so, I want to ask you a question that is, I'm trying really hard to insert a Fast and the Furious reference. Yeah. <laughs> But I was watching it over the weekend, and I was saying to Nish earlier that in the have you, do you have you watched that by the way have you watched I any haven't. of them? That's Sorry. fine. You got taste. It's okay. <laughs> uh, I respect it. Um, yeah, um, in the first few uh, movies, they all sort of gear up their cars to have nitrous oxide, which makes them go really fast when they're racing. It's called NOs, right? And so in the film, they're constantly talking about like. I really need some NOZ, get me some NOZ. And it makes me laugh in the context of the hysteria around nitrous oxide and some of the uh, legislation that's been brought in. I understand that the Greens have a much more liberal, relaxed policy towards drugs. And I just wanted to hear from you what it is. Like, what yeah. is it?
4: I mean, legalise and regulate, basically, Yeah. in a nutshell. Like, you know, you only have to look at uh, both how the war on drugs hasn't been working <laughs> for the last... 50 years or however long it's been going on now. Look at the prohibition era in the US. Like that didn't stop people drinking alcohol. It just meant that they drank illegal, dangerous bootleg gin made in the bath that made them go blind. Mm, Do you think there's any parallels to the current drug system in the UK? Legalise and regulate is the way to protect people's public health and that's the thing that drugs or rather problematic drug use, is a public health issue and criminalising people for possessing a small amount of drugs for their own use um, when either they're not doing themselves any harm or they are, in which case they need a public health intervention. And so Green Party approach would be to, and you'll have seen an announcement from Scotland recently, again, where Greens are in government and and, and their policy is very, very similar to ours, how much you regulate depends on... The, the effects of those drugs. Mm-hmm. So the ones that don't do very much harm can have fairly light regulation and the ones that do more harm, more so. And I think, you know, that's evidence-based, like pretty much every uh, organisation that is about reducing drug harm and all the experts say that, that the war on drugs has completely failed. And so it's really disappointing to see the Conservatives, not so surprisingly, but more disappointingly Labour, just really like, doubling down on this war on drugs criminalising approach when it doesn't do anyone any good. Can I ask you one more question?
1: Um, Costings. I don't like to be this person, but it is why the Labour Party have said that they've pushed back their uh, green plan because they simply will not have the money from the time they made their first promises. Obviously, the uh, economy's tanked, uh, rising interest rates, cost of living crisis, blah, 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 blah. This is the criticism that's going to be levied at the Green Party, right? They're going to say, where are you going to cost all this from? How are you going to pay all this? What's your response to that?
4: Well, I think Labour are really clearly keen on talking about how realistic their policies are now. And realistic, yes, I I agree. You know, the Green Party manifesto in 2019 was fully costed and our manifesto this time around will be as well. We're working on it at the moment, so I can't give you chapter and verse yeah. yet, but I, it will be fully costed. Um, but my concern is that Labour are, are kind of hiding behind the word realistic in order to not be ambitious because actually there are ways to fund really ambitious, bold policies and it's about your political priorities and your political will. So, for example, um, the kind of ways that you can raise revenue that, to make a really transformative change are things like a wealth tax, which is something the Greens have been talking about for a while. So that a wealth tax would be... A, you know, it's, it's not massive, it's a quite modest extra tax of a percent or so only on multimillionaires who can, who definitely have broad enough shoulders to take that um, and it would only be on their wealth above a certain level um, and that would both generate income in order to pay for services, whether that's about... Um, you know, a nationwide home insulation programme, which would both bring down our carbon emissions but also give people warmer, more comfortable homes and overwhelmingly help those on the lowest incomes. Because
2: it brings down heating
4: expenses. Exactly. It's a win... Like, I bang on about home insulation because it's a win-win-win. Like, it gives people more comfortable, healthier homes. We've all heard about the, you know, harms of living in a cold, damp home. It lowers their bills and it lowers their carbon emissions all in one go. Um, It reminds me of this um, cartoon that Greens are always a fan of where there's, like a um, load of people in a lecture theatre and a, and a whiteboard full of the benefits of taking climate action and there's a speech bubble saying, but what if climate change is a hoax and we make the world a better place for no reason? <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> there's so many good reasons to do all this stuff and it's about political priorities. What, a big part of the reason why the Greens are keen on a wealth tax, is that as well as raising funds, it addresses the real source of inequality in this country. Yes, there's inequality in incomes, but the real source of inequality is is inequality in wealth, is that some people have intergenerational wealth passed down to them. And so everything is easier when you have a massive buffer behind you. And we're not talking about taking all the money off people who've got more, but just taking a little bit and it helps everyone else. It it redistributes a little bit in society. It makes everything fairer. There's also things you can do with income tax. So one of the biggest injustices in our tax system at the moment is that uh, income tax, so tax from work, is taxed um, at a higher rate than income from shares and assets. So if you are working, you get taxed a lot. If you're sitting on your ass while your shares accrue value, you're getting taxed less. That's completely unreasonable. Um, and so we would s- simplify the tax system and unify those so they're at the same level. We would reintroduce um, the higher tier for income tax, which, by the way, Labour Party pledged to do, and then that was one of their many U-turns. There's no shortage of ideas for how to how to reform taxes and and raise more income. It's about what you're willing to do. What you know, if you have the political will, and the Greens do. That's Great. a
2: lovely place to leave it. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you
4: Carla. so much. No worries. That was really fun.
0: a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.
3: It's 2024. We're facing another presidential election with huge stakes. You want to help. You don't know where your money will actually make a difference or how to figure that out. Ensure you love to take an edible and not think about it, but you can't because you do care. Let Vote Save America make it easy for you with their new anxiety relief program. Here's how it works. You set up a monthly recurring donation at the level that feels right for you, and Vote Save America will send 100% of it to the grassroots organizations and down-ballot races that need it most. Then, at the end of the month, they'll tell you where your dollars went. That's it. Set it and forget it. Vote Save America's already raised $52,000 in monthly recurring donations. Love it. That's great. From over 1,000 amazing sustaining donors who've signed up and trusted Vote Save America to make their dollar go further. But we still have a long way to go and Vote Save America needs your help to get there. Sign up at votesaveamerica.com and enjoy your edible. (laughs) Legal disclaimer, paid for by Vote Save America, votesaveamerica.com, not authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee.
1: So on this podcast, we are often critical of the of MPs and how they conduct themselves. We're uh, particularly keeping a sharp eye on those on the blue side of things. But it's very nice that this week we get to flag up something genuinely lovely, genuinely heartfelt, kind, beyond tribal politics um, that happened in Commons this week. So it came during the debate over the way that some Conservatives had sought to undermine the Cross-Party Privileges Committee's report, uh, which subsequently found that Boris Johnson had lied to Parliament. Um, some Conservatives allied to Johnson, suggested that the person chairing that, veteran Labour MP Harriet Harman, was doing it all as some sort of vendetta, some grudge against Boris Johnson. But she had someone defend her, uh, someone that we might not necessarily think would have. So here's the moment that Tory MP Laura Farris stood up to defend Harman against the attacks from some of her own colleagues.
4: The Member for Camberwell and Peckham had already announced her intention to
1: retire from Parliament at the next election. A parliamentary career that has spanned five decades and has been defined probably more than any other person who's ever sat in this House by her commitment to the advancement of women's rights. Fourteen weeks... After she took up, 14 weeks before she took up that appointment, her husband of 40 years, Jack, had died. Against this background, I invite members of the House to consider what is more likely that she agreed to chair the committee as a final act of service to this House, or that she did so because she was interested in pursuing a personal vendetta against Boris Johnson. That is an absolutely beautiful clip. You can actually see Harriet Harman. She's she's brought to tears by those words. It's really, really moving. So it only feels right that we award the PSUK Hero of the Week to the two of them, joint winners. Um, Yeah, for Harriet Harman, for her... Just her legacy, hard work, and certainly her grace under the pressure from people who supported Johnson and all their horrible accusations, but also to Laura Farris for just, you know, rising above the tribalism, the nastiness, showing a bit of humanity to your supposed opponent. And, you know, it's just nice to see some women showing some solidarity to each other. So, yeah, I've got a little joint winner this week, Nish. Top that.
2: Uh, Well, I'm going to ruin the mood uh, by immediately bringing us back down to the villain of the week, uh, who's the Conservative Immigration Minister, Robert Jenrick, a man so petty and so heartless that he ordered staff uh, at an asylum centre to paint over cartoons on the walls that were designed to help children. These are children fleeing some of the most unimaginable circumstances possible who have often uh, made journeys on very dangerous, unsafe vessels There are cartoons on the walls to make them feel more at ease, but he reportedly felt the centre was too welcoming. So they got contractors in to paint over pictures of Mickey Mouse and Tom and Jerry at the centre in Kent after staff initially refused to comply with his request. Now, Jemrick was actually challenged uh, over this by Labour during the debate on the immigration bill, and this was his rather weak defence.
3: I've been clear in answer to uh, her right honourable friend that we provide very high quality care at all of the centres in which we support unaccompanied children. We, We didn't think that the setup in that particular unit was age appropriate because the majority of those individuals who were unaccompanied passing through it last year were teenagers. That does not change the fundamentals that we support anyone who comes to this country with decency and compassion.
2: I mean, painting over cartoons is the sort of thing that I think you would find two on the nose if you saw it in a movie and you were trying to depict a really unpleasant, heartless person. I think that uh, Robert Jenrick is a, a deeply uh, spineless, heartless, unpleasant individual, and he can absolutely go fuck himself. If you're interested in signing a petition, there is one on change.org. Uh, if you search for Robert Jenrick, restore cartoons. And also any artists that are willing to offer their skills to repaint the cartoons are being asked to email cartoons, not cruelty at gmail.com. That's cartoons, not cruelty at gmail.com. Uh, Michael Rosen uh, actually wrote a poem in response to the story, uh, and this is how it goes. Paint over Mickey Mouse, burn where the wild things are, pulverise the Lego, set fire to the Christmas tree star, seize all the teddies, bury every skipping rope, paint the walls dark brown, abolish all hope. Uh, off the back of that poem by Michael Rosen, I have one for Robert Jenrick. Robert Jenrick, you stupid fuck! I wish you nothing more than a lifetime of unhappiness. I think I don't think that's technically a haiku, but I think it's approaching one.
1: What do you do in, in spoken word? You click, isn't it? Yeah, that's what you're doing. I'm doing the clicking now it's just in me support,
2: f- flipping the bird at Robert Jenrick.
1: Gosh, I'm not surprised you picked him. What an awful, feeble, like mealy-mouthed, horrible. Bleh. Um, Another thing I just want to point out about what Robert Jenrick has done there, because it's something I see happens quite a lot when it comes to child refugees, is they, they kind of, this adultification process, you know, when it suits them they are um, they're adults yeah. you know they are young adults That hence why they're, there's young men marauding the coastline or however they want to portray these these vulnerable people um, looking for a better life but then on the other side when you kind of contrast that with uh, you know white British 14, 15, 16 17 year olds then they are definitely children and we saw the difference between Shamima Begum and you know other young uh, white radicals and I don't know there's just when you start looking into who gets to be a child who gets to have the innocence and not you really smell the racism. 100%. It's,
2: yeah, it's, it, it also puts Robert Jenrick in this weird political tradition that's emerging here and in America of uh, right wing politicians going to war with Mickey Mouse, because Ron <laughs> DeSantis is now basically in a kind of war of words with Disney and Disney's actually sort of pulling investment out of Florida, as we speak because of a response to legislation that DeSantis has brought forward. And so, you know, it's, uh, as always, it's good to know, misery loves company, and it's good to know that there are arseholes on both sides of the Atlantic who, for whatever reason, are now trying to have a fight with Mickey Mouse. (laughs) Okay, let's take a dip into our inbox. Uh, Sam Smith has WhatsApped us to say, "Uh, I love Nish's moving description of why he loves cricket in episode nine. I work in environmental sustainability now, but years ago I was in a film called Wondrous Oblivion, a cricket-themed film that's also about racism and anti-Semitism in 1960s London. The themes are clearly as relevant now as they were then. In any case, thanks for the great work and look forward to many more episodes to come. Warmest, Sam Smith. We've actually looked the film up and Sam is really underplaying things. It's not just in the film, he's the lead. He's a lead in the film, Aww. playing 11-year-old David Wiseman who's coached in cricket by his Jamaican next-door neighbor who's played by Delroy Lindo who people recognize from Spike Lee movies and all sorts of things. It's 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 really cool. Oh, wow.
1: Just on the subject of films, because I just wanted to uh, raise a point about me asking Carla Denya about Fast and the Furious. Our producer, Musty, is keeping track of how many times I asked politicians about it. And I'm, I would like to see this question become the new, do you like biscuits or what football team do you support?
2: Do you have you watched the Fast and the Furious?
1: Yeah. D-
2: did you think that there was a layer of irony in asking the co-leader of the Green Party... <laughs> Whether they've seen a film from a franchise dedicated to cars polluting, but, I, there's not a lot of hybrid vehicles in the Fast and the Furious. I'm not. I, listen, I'm not. I, I'm not having to go. I'm just making an observation. There's not a lot of people true. being like, right. Let's get the Prius ready. <laughs> <laughs> like the Rock is not like, where can I find a charging point in South Central but LA? But you've got
1: to admit. If that was an answer a politician said, you'd be like, oh, respect.
2: What, if they answered the <laughs> yeah. question? If they were like, actually, I prefer Hobbes and Shaw.
1: <laughs> no, but if they were like, oh, yeah, Fast and Furious, I couldn't really get into it because of the kind of um, glamorization and ultimately worship of the petrol car. <laughs> I'd be like, oh, is it? <laughs>
2: You've got that, that, that's my new conspiracy theory. My new conspiracy theory is that Shell financed the Fast and the Furious films <laughs> oh as a process. What's the opposite of like greenwashing? Like just pollution washing? <laughs> it's a, it's a reputation management exercise for big oil. That's right. that's my latest conspiracy theory.
1: Okay, you did not hear that here first. <laughs> yeah, even, they've
2: even got an actor who's named after petrol. They got Vin Diesel. <laughs> this whole thing, this goes right to the top. <laughs> If you've got any questions about politics, you can get in touch with us by emailing psuk at listing.co.uk, or you can send us a voice note on WhatsApp. Our number is 07514 644572. Internationally, that's plus plus four four seven five one four six four four five seven two. If you're new to the show, remember, hit follow on your app and you'll get a new episode every week.
1: And just finally, the British Podcast Awards has a vote. And you know what we're going to say, don't you? Like, please go and vote for us. It's free and it's easy. And, you know, we're all about voting here. We do love, we love it when people vote. So uh, vote for us at britishpodcastawards.com forward slash dot com, I just said.
2: Jesus Christ. <laughs> don't go to dot com. That's a very different. Uh,
1: britishpodcastawards.com. That Those a very
2: different podcast.
1: we don't want to go there. You know what they're going to do? They're going to fucking deep fake you and put it on that website now. <laughs> That's what they're going to do. HeadSafe the UK is a reduced listening production for Crooked Media.
2: Thanks to senior producer Musti Aziz and digital producer Silvio Malnati. Additional production from Annie Keatsdorf.
1: Video editing was by David Kapnovitz and the music is by Vasilis Fotopoulos.
2: Thanks to our engineer David Dugahi.
1: The executive producers are Louise Cotton, Dan Jackson, Madeline Herringer and Michael Martinez.
2: Watch us on the Pod Save the World YouTube channel, follow us on Twitter and TikTok where we're at Pod Save the UK or on Instagram through the Crooked Media channel.
1: And hit subscribe for new shows every Thursday on Spotify, Amazon or Apple or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee Governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen posed that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories.